Thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, last week we started looking at the beginning of Luke chapter 21, and Jesus sees people giving to the temple treasury, and he sees this poor woman give two mites, which would be equivalent to about two pennies today. And and Jesus uses that as an opportunity to share with us some great principles about giving. And now as we continue in Luke chapter 21, Jesus is going to hear some people talking about how beautiful the temple is, and he's going to take that as an opportunity to share some things about the future. Jesus is going to share some things to us about how we should be living in light of his return, in light of future events. And so let's see what Jesus has to share with us, starting Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5, says this, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so Jesus is still in the temple. The last few chapters, we've seen him doing things in the temple. He just shared this wonderful truth about giving, and he's still there. And he hears some people talking, and they're talking about the the temple and how it's adorned so beautifully and how these great donations from the Jews have enabled it to have this beauty. You see, the temple at Jesus' time was considered to be one of the most magnificent buildings in all the world. Jewish historians, actually a specific one named Josephus, he said that the temple was covered on the outside with gold plates that were so brilliant that when the sun shone on them, it blinded any observer. And where there wasn't gold, there were blocks of marble of such pure white that strangers from a distance thought there was snow on the temple. So this beautiful gold and marble that you know, was on the outside of the temple The Jews were able to put that there because they donated gold and marble to the temple for for this to be able to be built. And so they were very proud of their temple. They spoke of it often. And so Jesus hears of people sharing this. Oh, look at the temple. It's so amazing. Look at how magnificent it is. Look at the donations that enabled it to be like this. This is a common conversation, especially in the temple as they're gazing upon it. And so as this is transpiring, as they're talking about the amazingness of the temple, Jesus shares something that they never would have thought concerning the temple. He says, these things which you see, speaking about the temple, you're looking at it, you're looking at its beauty, you're looking at its gold and its marble. These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So as these people are admiring the temple, Jesus tells them there's coming a day when this temple is going to be destroyed. There's coming a day when this temple is going to be destroyed in such a way that not one stone is going to be left upon another. Now, this is a very important prophecy that Jesus is revealing here. He's speaking of a prophecy about literal events that are going to happen concerning the temple. Hey, guys, the future is not good for this building. 
In the future, this building is going to be destroyed, and it's going to be destroyed in such a way that there won't be one stone left upon another. Now, that's a very interesting prophecy, especially when you consider the fact that Jesus gives this extra bit of insight that not one stone is going to be left upon another. Now, when you consider the huge stones that were used to build the temple, you think, why in the world would anyone who's going to destroy this building take the time to remove every stone from on top of itself? Well, History gives us the reason why this took place. 37 years after Jesus shares this prophecy, there was a widespread Jewish uh, revolt against the Romans. And Rome crushed this Jewish revolt. They went into Jerusalem and they leveled it. And then they went to destroy the temple. But Jewish historians write that There was the one last building where these Jews kind of went back and retreated to because it was the one that was most secure. So they went into the temple and the Roman army surrounded that temple and they decided to light it on fire, ultimately to get these people to come out or just to kill them within it. Not thinking of the consequences of those actions because lighting this building on fire, all the gold that was on it and and in the roof and the ceiling, it was just beautiful on the inside and out, it starts to melt. And that gold then that melts seeps in between the stones that are there. And so the Romans, not wanting to waste gold and wanting to get that gold, the commander said, every single stone, I want it removed so we can get the gold that's within it. And so they did. And they pulled every stone down and they got all the gold that was left. And so they completely dismantled the temple. Exactly what Jesus said would happen. Not one stone would be left upon another. The destruction of the temple was so complete that today they still have difficulty knowing exactly where it was. Because, you know, normally you'll see some kind of structure, you know, the walls are down, but but the base is there. You could tell where it was. It was destroyed in such a way that they came and just like, we don't actually know for sure exactly on the temple mount where the temple stood because of its complete destruction. Now, if you go to Israel today, uh, you can go into Jerusalem. You can go to the Temple Mount. I took this picture when uh, my wife and I were there. And uh, as you see at the base of this wall here, all these stones, these are stones from that temple that they kind of pushed and and put into a pile there. Uh, And actually, those stones are about as big as me. Uh, From this picture, they look small, but they're quite large. And these are stones that came from this temple that was there at the time of Jesus that was destroyed in 70 AD. Now what Jesus shares about the temple brings two questions from those who are saying, wow, this is so amazing. Look at how amazing it is. And then Jesus says this thing that would have blown their minds. And so it brings out two questions. Notice the two questions that are there. Verse 7. So they asked him saying, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place. The first question concerning the destruction of the temple is, when's this going to happen, Jesus? I mean, wow, this is pretty amazing news that you say in this temple that we love so much is going to be destroyed. When's it going to take place? And the second question is, what signs are there going to be that enable us to know that this is about to happen? Now, as Jesus answers these questions, he's mainly focusing on what things will be like before the Jerusalem temple is destroyed in 70 AD, but he also is going to share a little bit with us about what things are going to be like right before his 
second coming. Now, as Jesus answers these questions, he's going to share with us five challenges, five challenges to his followers of how they should be living leading up to this destruction of the temple. And then he's going to give us a challenge as to how people should be living leading up to his return, his second coming. Something very important to understand when Jesus shares about the future, when he shares about end times, when he shares about his return, there's something that he always emphasizes more than anything else, and that is for us to be ready for it, to be living in such a way that we're ready for his return. You see, Jesus talks about a lot of details. The Bible talks about a lot of details, about the end times, about signs, about wonders, about things that are going to be transpiring. And, and it's good to understand those things. It's good to know what the Bible says about those things. But I have found a lot of Christians get so focused on the details of the signs of the times that they miss something far more important that Jesus always spoke about when he was speaking about his return. And that is the way in which you live. You see, I don't think Jesus is going to come back and be, I'm so proud of you that you knew all the signs, but you weren't living for me. He's not going to care if we know all the signs if we're not actually living the way that he commands us to live. He'd much rather, hey, you know what? You guys totally miss the signs, but you're living for me, and that's what's most important. That's what I want from you to when I come back to be living for me in the way in which I've commanded you to do. So as Christians... We need to understand there's plenty of things pointing to Jesus' return. And it's good to know them. It's good to study them. But make sure at the end of the day we realize, even as we're going to see in this passage, the main thing that Jesus is going to challenge us with is in light of those things, here is how you should be living. Because I'm returning, it should impact the way in which you live now. So Jesus here in chapter 21 is going to give us five challenges of how his followers should live leading up to the destruction of the temple, and then another challenge of how, <clears throat> of how we should live leading up to his second coming. Now, obviously, the challenge leading up to his second coming is, is very applicable to us because we're living in those times now. But I would say the challenges that he gives, the five to those leading up to something that's already transpired in 70 A.D., those challenges as well, I think, are very applicable because what he tells them is something that I think if we put into practice now will be very important for us to be ready for Jesus' return. So let's look at the first challenge that Jesus gives his followers of how to live leading up to the destruction of the temple. Verse 8, he says this, And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. Jesus starts off by saying, take heed that you don't be deceived. There's a specific deception that Jesus is referring to. He's speaking about being deceived by people who are claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the one who would deliver people. And he's saying, you know what? Don't be deceived by them. Jesus knew that many would arise willing to assume that political Messiah role. Oh, follow me and I'll help you overthrow Rome. Or, oh, follow me and I'll help you overthrow whatever Israel's enemy is. And Jesus says, you know what? The time is coming that that's going to happen. But don't go after them. Don't be deceived by them. Don't follow their lies. 
Now, if you remember back in Luke chapter 17, Jesus spoke of a similar thing, warning us not to be deceived by false messiahs. But he also gave us an understanding of how he's going to return. And he says this in Luke 17, verse 24. For as lightning flashes out of one part of heaven, shines to the other parts under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. You know, when you see lightning flash, you can't miss it. It lights up the sky. It's obvious. And that's what Jesus is saying. When I return, it's going to be clear. It's going to be obvious. You're going to know. So if some random person is saying, oh, I'm the Messiah. I'm Jesus. Follow me. You can know not to follow them because when Jesus comes, we're going to be very clear by the fact that he truly did come. Today, we're awaiting the return of Jesus, and we need to be careful not to be deceived by false messiahs, by false people claiming to be him. So the first challenge on how to live leading up to this destruction of the temple is don't be deceived by false messiahs. And I think that's a good challenge for us as we wait for the return of Jesus. Well, now let's look at the second challenge that Jesus gives us in verses 9 through 11. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilence, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Jesus says, you know, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and commotions and things like earthquakes and famines and fearful sights from heaven, don't be terrified. And the reason you shouldn't be terrified is because these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Now, all these things that Jesus mentions preceded the destruction of the temple. There were definitely wars. Rome was frequently at war with the Jews, with the Samaritans, with the Syrians during this period of time. There were earthquakes. Historians tell us of a great earthquake in the Roman Empire before Jerusalem was destroyed. There were famines. Acts chapter 11, verse 28, tells us of a severe famine that was happening uh, during that time before 70 AD. There were fearful sights. The mountain Pompeii blew its top just seven years before the temple was destroyed, and so that definitely would have been a fearful sight for people. And there were signs in heaven. Not long before the temple was destroyed, a comet looking like a sword actually hung over the city of Jerusalem Uh, by night for almost a year. So Jesus is saying, I'm telling you now that terrible things are going to happen. These things are going to take place, but, but don't be terrified because they have to happen before this takes place. So the second challenge on how to live leading up to the destruction of the temple is don't be terrified by the things that must happen before the temple is destroyed. And I think that's great for us as well because you know what? There's a lot more things that the Bible says that are even more terrible that have to happen before Jesus' second coming. And as we look and we see all the different things that Revelation reveals and different things that the Bible speaks about, sometimes we get terrified, but at the end of the day, we need to recognize all these things are just pointing that we're getting closer and closer and closer to Jesus' return. And so we should just expect them, not get terrified of them. Now let's look at the third (coughs) challenge that Jesus gives, verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogue and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. 
Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Well, now Jesus tells his followers things that we don't like to hear about being a follower of Jesus. He says, you know what? You guys are going to be persecuted. You're going to be imprisoned. Things are going to go bad for you because you're following me. You're going to be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But notice something very important about what this persecution, what being brought before these kings, what being brought before these rulers was going to accomplish. Jesus says, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Jesus starts by promising his followers, you guys will be persecuted. He promises them that they're going to stand in front of all sorts of people because of their faith in him. But he also wants them to understand something. And I think he wants us to understand something as well. Very important about persecution. This persecution is an opportunity for testimony. It's an opportunity to share with people about Jesus Christ. You know, none of us like to be persecuted, especially for believing in Jesus. And we usually look at persecution in this bad, negative sense, and we think, what redeeming value does it have? Well, Jesus wants us to see persecution in a different light. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, we don't like to go through it. But you know what? Persecution is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to reach people who obviously are very anti-Jesus if they're persecuting us for believing in him, that we might be able to reach them and share about them and testify of him so that hopefully they can come to the knowledge of who he is and what he's done for them and get saved. And you know what? Jesus goes on to say something very encouraging because, man, that's probably a daunting reality of you're going to stand before kings, guys. You're going to stand before rulers, and you're going to get an opportunity to testify of me. Whew, we're going to testify in front of kings, in front of rulers. That's, that's a little bit you know, daunting. But notice what Jesus goes on to say in verses 14 and 15. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Jesus says, you know what, guys, when you're put on trial... When you stand before these rulers, when you stand before these kings, when you stand before these people who are persecuting you, and you get this opportunity to testify of me, don't be worried about it, because I'm going to do something for you. I am going to enable you to speak. I'm going to give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Basically, Jesus is saying, I will give you the words in that moment to speak in such a way that you will testify of me in a way that will draw those in and help them understand the truth of who I am. You know, in the book of Acts, we see many examples of this taking place. Right away in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they're preaching Jesus to the crowd. People are getting saved. The religious leaders hate it. They arrest them. They threaten them. They're going to beat them. And Peter and John, filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told, give this amazing defense of why they're sharing Jesus and why they need to continue to share Jesus. And we're told that the religious leaders marvel. Aren't these guys uneducated fishermen? How are they responding with this kind of wisdom? Well, it's supernatural. God gave it to them. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen stood there before the council of religious leaders, and he gives this amazing teaching to them. 
They end up killing him, but ultimately God spoke through him powerfully to them. And one person who was there, who I'm convinced was very touched by that, was Saul, who later becomes Paul. And he got to hear that powerful message of Stephen. And speaking of Paul, probably more than anyone in the book of Acts, we see him standing before religious leaders, before Roman leaders, before emperors. And he gets an opportunity to share Jesus Christ, and each time the Spirit of God gives him the words to speak and to testify. So the third challenge on how to live leading up to the destruction of the temple is be ready to be persecuted. Know that it's going to happen, but see it as an opportunity to share Jesus. The Bible says those who live godly in Christ Jesus will live a wonderful life and nothing bad will happen. No, it says will suffer persecution. One of those promises in scripture that we don't really like, but it's true. We live for Jesus. People aren't going to like it. So expect it, but also see it as an opportunity, not as this negative, horrible thing of, oh, man, people keep coming against me. Well, yeah, but I get to share Jesus and they need to hear Jesus. I think this is very important for us as we wait for Jesus return because we need to be ready to be persecuted. We need to see it as an opportunity to share Jesus, and we need to trust the power of the Holy Spirit will give us the words and the wisdom to speak as we get these opportunities to stand before our persecutors. You know, as you look through the world in the last hundred years, you know, there's been a huge amount of persecution among Christians, and and really, in America, for a, a good portion of that, the persecution has been little to none. It's been, you know, Christianity is well received here, but, you know, in recent years, we're seeing a great rise in persecution here in America. I think we need to be expecting that to grow. Understand, hey, We're believers. The culture doesn't like it. They don't like what we stand for. They don't like what the Bible teaches. As we stand before the culture and share that, they're coming against us. And so we need to be ready for persecution and see it as an opportunity to share Jesus with a culture that desperately needs it. Let's look at the fourth challenge. Verse 16. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience possesses your souls. Well, Jesus continues on with this wonderful news that I'm sure they wanted to hear. First, you guys are going to be persecuted, but see it as an opportunity to testify. Well, the persecution is going to actually get a little more close to home. He says, you know what? People that are closest to you, like family, friends, parents, siblings, they're going to hate you. They're going to even kill you because of your belief in me. And then Jesus goes on to say something that at first seems a little bit contradict. Well, wait a second, they're going to kill me. But then he says, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. And then verse 19 really is a bad translation. The ESV translated more accurate. It says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Well, wait a second, Jesus, you're saying that they're going to kill us. And then you turn around and you say, you know, not a hair of your head's going to be lost. And by your endurance, your, your lives will be saved. What are you talking about? What are you talking about eternity? Yeah, they might take your life here in this earth, but understand, you know what? In an eternal perspective, not a hair of your head is going to be lost because you know what? You might give your life for me here, but you will be with me and saved for all eternity in heaven. The fourth challenge on how to live leading up to the destruction of the temple, is when you face horrible persecution, remember heaven awaits you. Remember this is as bad as it's ever going to get. You know, remember back in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus says this, 
My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. It's really all the world can do to us. They can kill us, but that's it. Jesus goes on to say, who you should really be afraid of is the one who, after your body's dead, can cast you into hell for all eternity. That's the one who you should fear. Oftentimes, people in the world, all we're concerned about is, is what other people can do, but ultimately what we should be concerned about is what God can do when we don't believe in him. All the world's ultimately going to be able to do to us is kill us. Well, Paul had a mindset about that I think is so important. I think he, he grasped this truth and lived it. Philippians chapter 1, one of my favorite chapters uh, in the Bible, he says this, Paul, Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul had this perspective, this understanding on life that I think is just so amazing. They just recognize, you know what, for me, if I'm going to live here in this life, it's going to be for Jesus. And if that means I die, fine, because death, I realize, is a gain. What do you mean death is a gain? Death is a gain because I'm no longer here and I go to heaven where there's no more sadness, there's no more sickness, there's no more pain. Death is a gain because I go to be with Jesus Christ. Paul recognized that. And he says, you know what, I actually have this battle. You know, should I stay or should I go? You know, should I long to be with the Lord in heaven or should I stay here? And he says, ultimately, I'm going to stay because I know it's better for you. But I realize I'd rather be with him in heaven. For me, to live in this life is Christ and to die is gain. And I think that's such an important thing when you're facing horrible persecution because Paul was someone who makes this statement and he knew what facing horrible persecution was like. He went through more than any of us probably will ever go through and he recognized, you know what, I'm willing to continue to be beaten for Jesus. I'm willing to continue to go through the pain and the suffering and the rejection and the heartache for Jesus because to live is Christ and that's what's most important. And if they ultimately do the worst they can do, which is take my life, that's okay. Because that's a gain to me. I then get to go be with him in heaven. The worst thing this world can do is kill us. But then we go to heaven. So it's actually a gain. So when we're facing horrible persecution like betrayal or death from people that are close to us. Remember, heaven awaits us. Remember, this is as bad as it ever will get for us. The fifth challenge. Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus gives a great warning here. And he's already said, you know what? Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed. Well, when is this going to happen? What are the signs of these things? Well, let me tell you guys, when armies start to surround Jerusalem, big red flag, big warning, the desolation is coming. The destruction is coming is coming. That's a time to get out of there. That's a time to flee. That's a time to leave this area. Now, this is very interesting because if you look through the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, and I've mentioned before that oftentimes that the Jews missed the fact that Jesus was going to have two comings, the first as the suffering Savior, the second as the conquering King. Well, the Bible talks about Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes as the conquering King, is going to destroy the armies of Israel that surround it. 
And so there was this mindset of, great, bring it on, surround Israel, because that's just going to mean the Messiah is going to come and protect us and take care of us and wipe you guys out. And so as Rome surrounded Jerusalem, there was a sense in which many of the Jews were excited. They're thinking, all right, now the Messiah is going to come and he's going to rescue us and he's going to deliver us. But you know what? There was a group that left. And that group were the Christians. Because they believed the words of Jesus when he said, you know what? The temple's going to be destroyed. The armies are going to surround this place. You know what? This is going to happen. And so you guys need to flee. You guys need to go. Jewish historians claim that no Christian perished in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD because they fled out of the city when the Romans' armies surrounded it. Now, this is pretty significant because Josephus tells us there were over one million Jews killed during that battle and over 97,000 that were taken captive by the Romans. Truly, Jesus meant it when he said, these are the days of vengeance. And he warned all who would listen how they could flee from the destruction. There's a way to get out, guys. There's a warning sign. If you want to listen to me, you want to obey me, you can escape this. The fifth challenge on how to live leading up to the destruction of the temple is listen and obey what Jesus says is the way to escape the coming destruction. I think this is very relevant for us today as we wait for Jesus' return. You know, some people don't realize the reality of the second coming and what Jesus is ultimately going to do. He's going to come as the judge. He came as a suffering servant the first time. He's going to come as the conquering king to judge his enemies, to judge those who have not accepted him. And he says, you know what? There's a way to escape that. There's a way to escape facing me as the judge of all your sin. And that is if you accept me right now. If you believe in me now, if you accept who I am, accept what I've done for you, ask for your, me to forgive you of your sins, then when I come a second time, you can escape that. That's not going to be something that you have to fear or worry. But are we willing to believe him? Are we willing to obey him? Are we willing to take that way of escape and say, I recognize that when you come again, I don't want to face you that way. I want to face you as my Savior and Lord that I've accepted, not as my judge that's going to ultimately sentence me to hell. Jesus finishes these five challenges by saying something very important in verse 24. He says, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, in 70 AD, we see a true literal fulfillment of the trampling of Jerusalem by not Jews, but Gentiles. The Roman army comes and they destroy it and they wipe it out and they annihilate the temple. Well, you know what? Jesus says it's going to continue like that until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Well, we're living in that time. Guess what? Jerusalem is still ultimately, you know, we see a wonderful thing that happened when Israel became a nation again, but it was almost, you know, a couple thousand years before that took place. But Gentiles have occupied and controlled Jerusalem. Even now, as Israel has their nation back, they've given the Temple Mount control over to the Muslims. They still have it. Gentiles still have control over aspects of that. And Jesus is saying, we're in this time of the Gentiles. And until that time is fulfilled... God's not ultimately going to come back and deal with the nation of Israel. And so we're living in this time of the Gentiles. And it's a good time for us because guess what? We're Gentiles. And the wonderful thing about the time of the Gentiles is that the gospel is going out to the Gentile world. The majority of the church is Gentile. And we're seeing people get saved and saved and saved. And it's a great, wonderful thing. But the time of the Gentiles is going to come to a completion. 
And it's going to come to a completion when the final Gentile gets saved and then Jesus comes back and raptures his church and the time of the Gentiles will be over. And then once again, God is going to focus on Israel. The tribulation, the seven years of tribulation, the Bible calls it Jacob's trouble. Not the church's trouble, Jacob's trouble. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, this is the focus of the seven-year tribulation. It's the focus is Israel. God is now going to focus once again on Israel once the time of the Gentiles is complete. So now Jesus is going to share a couple things focusing on this seven-year tribulation, focusing on his second coming, focusing on some future events. Notice what verse 25 says. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the seas and the waves roaring, men's heart failing them for fear and the expectation of those which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when, they see, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your head because your redemption draws near. Jesus shares there's going to be several signs, several things that you're going to see before his second coming. There are going to be signs in the sun, signs in the moon, in the stars, on the earth, distress of nations, and the power of heaven being shaken. Now, that's pretty general. Well, what sign in the sun? What sign in the moon? What sign in the stars? You know, what are these signs going to be like? You want to know the signs? Go to the book of Revelation. Start in chapter 6. Read through chapter 18. You're going to get great detail of what these signs are, like the sun and the moon and things that are going to transpire. It gives exactly what Jesus is referring to here. And all of this is going to culminate in a dramatic, spectacular return of Jesus to the earth with his church. And he says, when these things happen... Look up, lift up your head, because your redemption draws near. When you see these signs, when you see all these things happening, look up, because Jesus' return is soon, and he's coming to redeem you. He's coming to take care of you. I read this. I thought it was interesting. If you want to be distressed, look within. If you want to be defeated, look back. If you want to be distracted, look around. If you want to be dismayed, look ahead. But if you want to be delivered, look up, because Jesus is there to deliver you. Well, now Jesus is going to share a parable to help make this point about seeing the signs of his second coming. Verse 29, then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Jesus gives a parable about trees. He says, you know what? When the trees start budding, it's a sign. It's a sign that summer is near. You see, fall comes and all the, the leaves fall off and then you go through the winter and there's no tree, leaves on the trees. And then all of a sudden the buds come out and you realize, oh, Guess what? Something's happening. Summer's coming. In the same way you see these things happening, these things being the signs in the sun and the moon and the stars on the earth, distress of nation, the power of heaven being shaken. Jesus is saying, when you see that, know something is coming. It's a sign that something is coming near, and that something is the return of Jesus. Jesus goes on to say, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. 
Well, what generation is Jesus referring to? At first, people thought, well, he must be speaking to the disciples. Well, obviously, they're not the disciples because the disciples you know, are all dead, and, and this is yet to ha- happen. Uh, most commentators believe that the generation that Jesus is referring to is the generation that actually sees these signs. This generation that sees these signs, these things will all happen, and then Jesus will come. Then Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. This is something I think so important for us to understand what Jesus is claiming here. He's saying, ultimately, my words won't pass away because I am God. Even though heaven and earth pass away, my words are not going to pass away because they are the words of God. And I think we need to recognize that when Jesus speaks about these things, we need to trust them. We need to believe in them because they're the words of God. These things are going to happen as he says they're going to happen. And some people look at that and think, ah, yeah, this stuff's not going to take place. We don't need to worry about the future and what's going on. Well, Jesus says, yes, these are going to transpire. He's going to come back. He's going to judge people. We need to accept that as true because he is God and what he says is true. Well, Jesus finishes his response to these questions about the destruction of the temple with a final challenge that is more applicable to us because now it's a challenge of how we should live in light of his return. Notice what he says now in verses 34 through 36. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. That day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus gives three challenges ultimately to us who are living in this day, this day close to the return of the Lord. And he says there's three things you should be doing as you're waiting for that. Three ways in which you should live as you're waiting for my return. The first is take heed to yourselves. The second is watch. And the third is pray. This Greek word translated take heed means to give attention to, to apply oneself to, and to devote thought and effort to something. We need to be very careful to give attention to the way in which we're living. Especially now in these last days, are we really giving attention to the way in which we live? Are we applying ourselves and devoting thought and effort into the way in which we live? Specifically saying, am I living in a godly way? Am I living in the way that Jesus would want me to live if he came back tomorrow? If I knew and was confident that his return was tomorrow, would it change the way I live today? How would I live today? Am I really giving careful attention to that to make sure I'm living in a godly way? Because Jesus gives us a warning. If we're not careful with how we're living, if we're not focused on really making sure we're living in a godly way, then guess what could happen? He says, then we can be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. You see, when we're not giving attention to godly living, when we're not applying ourselves to that, when we're not really focusing and thinking about how we are living, we can just get caught up in living for the things of the world. Carousing, drunkenness, living for the cares of this life. And Jesus tells us, you know what, when someone gets weighed down with those things, his return is going to come on them unexpectedly. Because they're not thinking about it. They're not focused on it. They're not watching. They're not praying. They're not living for him. They're just living for themselves. They're just living for the things of the world. And so he says, when I come back, it's going to be unexpected to them. I'm just going to show up and they're not going to be ready for me. They're not going to be living for me. They're not going to be doing what I've called them to do. And so Jesus adds to his challenge, take heed to yourselves. But he also says we need to watch and you need to pray. 
Watch and pray so you don't get caught off guard. Watch and pray so you don't get sucked into living like the world. So Jesus shares five challenges of how to live leading up to the destruction of the temple. And then he gives us this sixth challenge. A challenge for how we should live leading up to his second coming. He says we need to give attention to the way we're living and to watch and pray. Luke finishes this chapter telling us just some things in verse 37 and 38. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So in the morning, in the day, Jesus continues in the temple. He continues to reach people. He knows this is the last week of his life. He knows his death is coming. He wants to just continue to reach as many people as he can. At night, he goes to the mount called Olivet, and there he ministers to people. These verses make very clear that Jesus wants us to live ready for his return. We do that by not being deceived by false messiahs, by not being terrified by things that must happen before Jesus comes, by being ready to be persecuted and see it as an opportunity to share Jesus, by being confident that heaven awaits you, by listening and obeying to what Jesus says is the way to escape the destruction and the judgment that will come, and by living a godly life and watching and praying. I truly believe as you look at the signs of the times, as you read scripture, that we are living in the last days that Jesus' return could be at any moment. And the challenge that Jesus continues to give is live like it. As he shares these things, the ultimate thing he wants us to recognize is live like I could come back tomorrow. Live in a way that you're ready for me. That you're not living for your own pleasures, not living for this world. Live for me. Reach people for me. Recognize it's about me. And so when I come, you'll be ready. You'll be watching. You'll be praying. We have the worship team come up. Let's just take some time if you desire to just.